Yeah, I would say for anyone who is stuck in that place that feels life isn't worth living and is stuck in a mindset where other people's other people's opinions of you are your reality, I just want you to know that this is your world, that you have agency, you have autonomy, that you can decide today to be stronger than your circumstances and that you can face anything that you're going through because you are stronger than what you go through. And at the end of your journey, I hope you look back and see the beauty in all of your battles and the strength in all of your storms. This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. That's Katie Moran, an author, speaker, social media influencer, and an advocate for mental health and sexual assault and suicide prevention. Katie is a survivor of sexual assault, suicide attempts, and suicidal ideation, and has spoken with remarkable openness about her challenges with depression and anxiety in a world in which we can be prone at times to forget the stigma that still exists around these topics. Katie writes and speaks openly about these topics, including the complex emotions associated with rape and sexual assault, including how her second rape while in college was instrumental in teaching her that neither the first or the second one was her fault. Through her books, her blog, and her social media presence, Katie puts herself out there and is vulnerable in a hope, she says, that she can help others. This leads to both situations where people who have deep pain and who are at great risk for harm reach out to her, and she also receives a significant amount of vitriol. Katie is the author of a 2022 poetry book called Redeeming Endless Possibility, a 2023 book of spooky campfire tales called Lantern Lines, in a 2022 book with the self-explanatory title, Lucid Dreams That Saved My Life. She advocates using creativity that can be found, she believes, in everyone as an instrumental tool of healing. After working as a social work intern at an association for neurodiverse people with intellectual disabilities in Staten Island in 2016 and 17, Katie was a graduate intern who worked with the Medical School Research Center at Columbia University on student experience, founded her own companies focused on applying neurosociological research to creative pursuits, and also a clothing brand focused on inspiring and uplifting people. Katie herself uses narrative writing, poetry, photography, and coaching people on creativity as a part of her own healing. Katie received her undergraduate degree in sociology from Fordham University, a Catholic Jesuit university in Manhattan, where she also minored in creative writing and African-American studies. As an undergraduate, Katie's research focused on religious inclusion at the university. She also received her master's degree in social work from Fordham's Graduate School of Social Service, where she received the Reverend Dr. Nicholas J. Langland award for outstanding thesis on master of social work students attitudes on mental health stigma 
Her academic publications include one about restorative justice, an approach to justice that focuses on collaborative processes to repair harm done to victims. It's a new wave of approach to solving and healing that involves a process between people and those who harm them, where those who hurt others take responsibility for their actions, and those who are hurt give them the opportunity to redeem themselves. Today, we're going to discuss stigma, healing, and advocacy in these areas, the cost and value of being vulnerable in the public sphere, and using creativity to find healing. So, Katie, I just wanted to thank you for joining. It's very funny. So several months ago, I had, you know, one of my friends that I follow, one of my really good friends, and she she, um, she says that her Twitter f- feed is filled with nothing but like kittens and babies. Um, but she had retweeted or liked something, I think probably liked something um, that you had posted and I caught it. And it was about sort of like, pushing through things like depression. And then I went on to your Twitter page and I was like, wow, this person's got like a positive message. They are willing to talk about things that a lot of people don't talk about, like suicide and suicidal ideation. I was like, this is a really cool voice. So I started following you. And then one day I saw a post where you had interviewed, because I didn't know about your creative side as much. Um, You had interviewed... um, you know, my friend, Brett Talley, and I was like, okay, this is the universe telling me to pick up um, the phone and call this person. And we, when I was out in Idaho, you know, a month ago, we had a chance to have that great conversation. And just hearing about your story and also the message that you share is super inspiring to me. I thought it was just as somebody who is also a creative who's also um, dealt with suicidal ideation, depression, things like that. It was just really awesome to see how quickly you've found a way to, through things like your podcast, Artistic Spirit, and your social media presence and your companies, how quickly you've been able to find a way to um, bring so much good out of such tough things. So thanks again. Well, thank you so much. And this is something I do talk about a lot is this idea of invisible impact. And when we put our message out there, we don't really know who we're reaching. And I never would have known that I reached you if you didn't pick up the phone that day. And some of the most meaningful experiences of my life, it's just when People reach out and they say that I had an impact on them or they could relate to something I posted or something I wrote. And that is so meaningful to me. I think back to when I was suicidal in college and I was self-isolating and I felt so alone. And to think now I talk about how alone I felt and can reach thousands of people and so many people actually feel that and they feel connected to someone in that aloneness. And Mm -hmm. I love that idea of collective healing and how we might not be in the same room, but we could have and share a heartbeat. And I think that's so powerful. 
Oh, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it, that we can share our heartbeat. Because, you know, there's sort of like two sides of the coin when I think about it and I think about what you said. There's like the person out there or, you know, somebody like you who's sending a message doesn't necessarily know where it's landing or how much it's landing or how impactful it is. And I've talked to a lot of my own listeners, you know, after they send me their first message and they were like, well, I was so afraid to write you because I figured your inbox would be so filled or um, for some other reason. And, you know, I tell them like, oh, you don't know how this important this is to me. Like being able to hear what you like or what was impactful or what helped you you know, I always want to hear that. And then there's the other side of it that like when you create something that's meant to have a positive impact, there are all these people out there whose hearts you're touching and you're able to sort of collectively heal together. That's a cool way to think about it. I really like that part. How did you, I'm just curious, how did you even decide to, to put yourself out there and, 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 and raise your voice. Yeah. So it came in stages. The first time I ever spoke out publicly about my sexual assault and healing from that and mental health was when I was training and I had an internship with a UN NGO and they asked me to give testimony for their training at a conference. And it was really powerful. The that I shared my story and people were connecting with it. And I even had someone come up to me and just like whisper in my ear that they had been through something similar. And I always think about that. Like when people talk about the me too movement, like the real power in it is that when one person raises their voice, the other person doesn't have to take all that energy to raise their voice too, but all they have to say is me too. And you understand. And I think that's something that's so powerful is that with those two words, people can really connect. And like I said, like share a heartbeat. Yeah. So when you were in that UN program, did they give you a specific topic to pick? Or was it you could share anything about your life? How did you decide, I guess, to, to share about that for like the first time beyond sort of like your friends? I'm just curious about like what, it's got to be frightening for people. Yeah. So it was about energy efficiency and a lot of the training was um, energy training. So for me, a lot of the times when I would do the exercises, I had this journal and I remember I would kind of like feel like I didn't want to do it because I felt like this is so unfair. I have to do this. Like no one else has to do this. And I recognized that the trauma that I was responding to was this idea that it's not fair. And I went deeper with that. And it reminded me of that feeling when I was sexually assaulted, how I felt like it wasn't fair. Oh, that's wow. So like that idea of just being in this sort of like innocuous situation where you felt like you were being forced into do, doing something became kind of like a trigger for other times where you've been in situations that you felt weren't fair. That That just reminds me of the idea that like, when trauma sort of exists in your life, it is like the smallest drop of a leaf or blow of the wind that can trigger it and push it to the surface. Yeah, I see it 
kind of like the ripple, like um, that it's really just like this tiny little drop in water and that it can have like send ripples and even waves um, of whether it be emotion or um, feelings that sometimes can feel out of place. And I think for a lot of people who are going through specifically trauma, it can show up and manifest in other disorders. And for me, that was something that I felt a lot of guilt around because I was silent about being sexually assaulted for about six years. Mm. And I was struggling with PTSD and it was undiagnosed because I didn't share that with anyone. Mm. Mm During that time, can you, and I mean, a lot of it on its face seems very obvious to me that there's shame and there's stigma around uh, sexual assault, there's shame and there's stigma around mental health challenges. And you've been really, you know, like we talked about, very open about your mental health challenges, the sexual assaults, like life struggles. What does it feel like when you're on that moment where you're making the cusp of making the decision to speak out? And what does it feel like when you're making a decision? Cause it's really a decision to hold back. What does it feel like inside? I'm just curious about that piece. Yeah. I think when I'm in that space where I'm feeling a decision to speak out, it's not so much about me anymore. And I think about I think about not only like the past version of myself that needed to hear it, but I think about that person who might be out there who might be experiencing something else. And I think when you first do it, you do it because you care about the people that are going to hear it and it has a purpose to it. Like when I spoke at the UN, I was very close to the organizers and I was just being honest and truthful like I would any day of the week. And I had shared privately to them, which allowed for that to that wound to become a scar and really heal so that I could speak about it, mm-hmm. it, which is something that a lot of people don't talk about is that sometimes you're not ready to talk about something until that wound really turns into a scar and then it is the right time. And for me, I so really it doesn't reopen over yeah. and over. That's one of the toughest things about trauma. I was just thinking about that. Like I, you know, I, I saw 9-11. I personally in my own life, which I don't always talk about, I was sexually molested as a kid. And one of the really interesting things for me is, you know, I resiliently bounce through life. Like, um, but when when COVID happened, I, I said to myself, okay, I need to get back into therapy. And I went back into therapy around that time. And one of the like unexpected gifts of that was that one day my therapist said to me, like, we were talking about something related to like being a reporter. And I mentioned something, some I think it was like one of the first set of dead bodies that I had seen, which was a, it was a train accident. There were these kids who went to the neighboring school and it was a school that my mom taught at. And they had seen a movie where a bunch of kids had laid under a train, but they didn't know the train they were laying under had a cattle prod and they were like spread over 50 feet. It was, it was brutal. And I was telling her about that story and she was like, how many dead people have you seen? And I started going through a list and she gave me the project of, figuring out 
how many dead people I had seen. And I, I, I was able to count 270. And she was like, they're all unnatural deaths. How many natural deaths? And I was like, oh, one, my grandfather. And, but I guess one of the things that is so, I think you made that point about like the scar and needing it to become a scar, not just a scab and certainly not an open wound is I thought brilliantly my therapist at that moment said, now you have a choice and your choice is, are you at the point? Well, she said, your first choice is, do you want to heal? Because she's like, you've built up all these walls to protect yourself that do an adequate w- job of protecting yourself, but they also deprive you of joy because you can't get close to people, and in my case, and other things like that. And she said, so you need to make that choice. Are you willing to pull down those walls? Because there's so much risk, so much emotional risk in pulling down those walls. And then she said, the second choice is you need to figure out whether going in these places are going to open up a wound that's going to cause you to bleed more or whether you are at the point where you could heal. And I had just never thought about it like that. And and that just reminded me of what you were saying about the scar and getting it to a scar. Like how, how does it get to a scar for you? That's, I guess that's the way it ended up for me, but how did you get there? Yeah, for me, it's sharing with either friends, family, or a therapist. And I think the first time you go through it, usually you can tell that you're still crying about it. Like it's something that moves you emotionally. And I think a lot of the times when you say something for the first time or you have a realization, it's really moving. And then um, the other way is writing. So if I'm writing fiction about a topic that is deeper for me, then I think that's really cathartic and healing. And the idea that one day someone will read it and they might be going through the same thing and feel the same way I feel about it or even deeper. And that is something that is really healing for me. This idea of having faith that my experience is not only my own, but can serve uh, serve as a lesson for someone else on their healing journey and help them go through it in the way that I didn't have. And I think sometimes there are certain things in my in my history that did help me heal. And I'm so grateful for those people. I'm so grateful for those experiences. And I really think now it's my turn to do that for other people. Hmm. Sort of just like stepping back. I'm, I'm just curious because I, I don't know a lot about what growing up was like for you. And I'm just curious before the sexual assaults and sort of some of the later struggles, what was, what was life for you like as a, as a kid? And like, what did you imagine your life would be like when you were younger? Yeah. So as a kid, um, I was, I was shy, but um, I really loved acting. It was like my big joy and my um, siblings and I, we would like put on shows and they would do like, (laughs) they would do like making the tickets and stuff like that. And I would um, do the acting and the performances and that was a big part of my life. Um, mm. How many siblings did you have? I have two older sisters and one younger brother. And my younger brother was like really like like we were best friends, always doing things together. Um, he was like my shadow. Um, I would always come up with like schemes and we would do them together. 
Aw, that's beautiful. But you were saying you really loved acting during that time period. and Yeah, actually, it started when I was a child. And my dad, he used to be the key grip um, on movies. So, and the key grip in movies, that's like a certain role that in the background. Yeah, it's like camera crew. Um, so he was like always very much into like um, cameras and stuff like that. So we had like, we would make home videos and that was kind of like, <laughs> like my big joy would be always um, making like videos and like shows. And that <laughs> was, that was probably like, the majority of my childhood and um, telling stories and acting out the stories. Actually, my love of writing came from wanting to have stories to act out. So mm-hmm. it was something that like grew naturally together. Yeah, I could totally see that. Did you, where'd you grow up? New Jersey in Bergen oh. County. Okay. 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 So the, so, so you guys grew up sort of like Bergen County for the most part, middle class, upper to middle class. Um, yeah, I think so. I'm not really, yeah. I'm not really sure. I don't really understand that stuff that much, even though I majored in sociology. Um, it, well, well, well. I can, I can assure you that everyone says they're middle class. <laughs> like nobody, nobody actually says they're upper class. Okay, some people who are poor know they're poor, but like no one knows they're. <laughs> upper class so it's always it's always hard to tell and you know like that's it's such an interesting scene like that idea of like your shadow younger brother mm-hmm. i'm guessing you guys were running around with a camcorder or something like that <laughs> we did we did we um we were um when it was like digitized we uh-huh. had, like a little a little camera um and uh-huh. yeah we like always had a camera now it's like everyone has their iphone so right um, He's, it's a it's, lot. Yeah, it's funny. But less fun, maybe. Yeah, um, we're so different. He's like a an accountant, and uh-huh. I'm like a creative. So it's like very almost like polar opposites. Um, but we always just um, were teammates. Did you guys pull your friends and family into it? Um, yeah, actually, my older sister, um, <clears throat> the one that was like um, just like a few years older than us the second born she used to do things with us um because we were just such a team that she like wanted to and i think a lot of the times there's this there's this thing that siblings do that they don't want to hang out with their younger sibling because it's not cool um but we actually got her to hang out with us um because we were always like doing something fun together yeah the um one of the things i was talking to somebody in theater recently um He's actually the son of somebody who's like one of my dearest, um, dearest friends. And we were talking about the fact that so many people in theater are actually pretty shy and can be somewhat introverted. And we were talking about how like so many people in theater, like being on the stage or like recording things or filming, and this is probably true about writers too, it gives you a powerful way to relate to the world that feels very safe. It feels much safer. And, you know, the other, and and someone else I was talking to was saying like a lot of movie actors are also very introverted. But so I think it can be surprising sometimes when you, when you see somebody like an actress or somebody who's involved in theater and you see them in sort of real life and you see their discomfort sometimes in interacting with the, 
with the rest of the world, it can kind of like throw you for a loop in a weird way, if that makes sense. You, you had just mentioned that you were, you were shy growing up and, you know, what was high school like for you? What was, what was, what was college like? Yeah. High school. Um, I was really focused on cheerleading and, it was like kind of like a a strict coach we had and um, it took up most of my time. And I went to an all girls Catholic high school. So it was like very fulfilling spiritually. And I feel like I was really prepared academically for college and for everything that came after that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was definitely a change of environment because you mentioned about like um, middle class and stuff like that. And I think um, when I got to high school, a lot of people were more affluent and Mm -hmm. um, it was strange going from um, like a public school where not everyone was to um, a high school where people were and people were more concerned about like, designer bags and um it i've never been materialistic so i i never really understood that yeah and um it's it could be hard sometimes to to fit in when you feel like when you feel like you really care about things that are on the inside and a lot of the world cares about what's on the outside yeah and i think yeah and i think that probably crosses over like it's very it's very obvious in the situation where you sort of like jump from a group of people who are less affluent to affluent, or even for people who are affluent, who all of a sudden, you know, like you, you can hear this, they go to the homeless shelter and they're like, holy cow, these are the things people worry about. Like eating, it can be very, very, very jarring, but in a situation like yours, it's, it's probably harder to find like, I guess, comfort when the things that, you worry about or wonder about related to the world just aren't aligned with the people who are there. Did that influence what you, what you decided ultimately to study? Um, I think it definitely, it definitely made me see that there's different worlds we're all living in and that not everyone is living necessarily in the same world. And it reminded me that there are some things that are universal And I wanted to understand how differences impacted people and how you can embrace them and even sometimes turn them on their head to tell stories that connect with people in a more profound way. Mm, So the idea that like we're all quite different based on our experiences and influences, but how do you essentially find the connections? Mm -hmm. Art was a way for you to, to find the connections. So tell me a little bit like about it, walk me through that time and walk me through college. And, you know, I, I know that I believe like, if I, if I remember this correctly, this college was at Fordham, you went off to Fordham university in New York, which is a Jesuit school. Um, but that's where you first started to have some of these struggles. Tell me a little bit about that. And, and, and what it was like for you to even encounter, I don't know, living in New York City, dealing with these kinds of struggles, the whole works of it. Yeah, I. it was really kind of like a culture shock because I went from an all-girls Catholic school to um, living on a floor with boys. And it was just really much like a, a big shock. Um, and I was really scared and I just wanted to fit in. 
Um, mm. So I think I overcompensated. And actually, I feel like I almost changed who I was drastically. Like you can go back to like videos of me and I had like this like super deep voice. And I think I was just trying to present someone who was more confident and even masculine than I was um, to try and fit in and be accepted. And um, I was really much, a lot of people probably won't believe this if you know me now, but I was like a clown. Um, and I actually thought about um, doing comedy and like stand up comedy. But, but clown, you were, you clowned around or you actually were a clown like with the. the no, <laughs> no, I clowned around. Uh, I was, I, I thought like um, everything could be solved with humor. And um, to me, everything was a joke. And even when I started to experience trauma, I would joke about it. And um, when I started to really have these deep feelings of after being sexually assaulted, of just feeling unsettled, and um, I felt like most of my relationships were superficial, and I felt like no one really knew me. Um, and my first suicide mm. attempt, I remember I was talking to someone about how no one really took me seriously because I was always joking about everything and how I just felt like a clown to my friends and that they only accepted me when I was giddy and joking and, and interesting. Yeah. Cause it's a lot like, um, that just made me think of the fact that so many comedians carry, you know, depression silently because the public persona that they've created makes it really hard to share some of the deeper darkest things like if you're the person among your friends who's always the the funny person or the person who's always optimistic it's really hard to kind of like step out of that role um sometimes and when you are trying to like you said trying to fit in it's almost even harder did you were, were you getting at the idea that even after your sexual assault the desire to fit in was still great. And that's kind of like part of why you sort of like brushed it off in your own head. I think it changed and there was a new desire to, to seem like I was okay. And um, Um, it was harder than wanting to fit in. What do you mean by a desire to, to feel like you were, you were okay? Yeah, I didn't want anyone to worry about me. And um, I knew that after it happened, that like my life had changed and it would never be the same. And I just saw the world completely differently. And it was so painful for me. And I didn't want anyone to see what I was going through. When did it happen? When did the first sexual assault happen? 2011. Okay. So you were in your first years. So your first years of college, like your sophomore year? It was the summer of freshman year. Okay. Oh, so, so it really was like very early in the college process. So you were on summer break during the time. Did you have people that you could go to and talk to immediately afterwards? Or did you even, because I know for a lot of people who go through this, you don't, A lot of people aren't even sure whether it was a sexual assault when it first happens. Like, what was was that like? Who did you turn to? How did you? Yeah, so I didn't really tell anyone. 
I was in a lot of pain and it was summer courses. So I was living off campus, but by the school. And um, I remember I would, I was studying Arabic at the time. That was my summer course. And I would go in and um, just have to like um, read in Arabic um, out loud to my professor. And I remember thinking like how that was like my only comfort and she would sit right next to me. And I just felt like that was like the safest place in the world, but I didn't really open up to anyone about it. And actually when I was sexually assaulted, the person who did it like left like change on the counter and it was like 17 cents and that was deliberate afterwards yeah he just had it it was like really bizarre he like had it in his shoe and he was like here you could have this and wow wow yeah yeah it was like this is actually the only post um because i shared this once on social media and it's the only post that i've deleted because i felt like it was still a little bit too much of a wound Mm. and you know, actually, I founded my company in 2017, and now the number 17 has meant so much to me. And I think that it's more about like my survival and my resilience. And I've but you've turned it into something good, yeah, powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The um, do you know what message he was trying to send when he did that? No, I think it it scares me a lot to try to understand what he was going through in his mind um, because it is something that is still so frightening to me. And um, I I don't think I've ever even really talked that much about like what exactly happened with people because I feel so like unsafe and uncomfortable. Um, And I, I think like what's something that I, that I will share is that the way I see it isn't necessarily about like what happened detailed Detailed wise, and I feel like sometimes yeah. like, that's what people get wrong. It's the effect, yeah. It's I, the effect. What I think, like, really something people don't talk about, and I think this is what people get wrong when they talk about sexual assault or rape, is that it it shows you that it's not your world, that you can say no, and that might not mean no to someone else. And for me, it made me feel like I was living in someone else's world. And I think that's one of the most detrimental ideas that you can internalize because then you try to you try to please other people. You feel like your words don't matter. You feel like you lose autonomy over yourself and really freedom. Yeah. Well, you know, it kind of like reminds me of the idea that like, you know, we learn about adversity when we're young and we know there are going to be struggles and there are going to be different things, but we're like used to happy endings or finding a way to get past adversity. That's like the way all of our movies are. And that's the way that like books are, even horror writers like Stephen King, like mm-hmm. for the most part have a happy ending. But there's something that when you really, and to your point, like, you can't get into the business of comparing traumas, right? Because mm-hmm. for one person, an event that may seem particularly not scary to one person is earth shattering to them because of their worldview, their framework, their makeup. And once you go through one of those traumatic moments, whether it's sexual assault or it's like a regular assault or it's having a gun pulled on you or whatever it might be, like any of these things, or for some people, it might be something like a divorce or 
or pick, pick whatever it is, that it's really easy to become nihilistic and start to think you have no control, Mm -hmm. that you have no agency and nothing matters anymore. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're kind of talking about some of those feelings, like feeling like you'd lost your agency and control over things and that things didn't really matter. Is that fair? Yeah. And even cynicism. I think I became cynical afterward. Um, and I felt, I felt, um, cause I was actually, I had strong feelings for someone that I was talking to at the time. And that's why I like, didn't want to, um, be intimate with this person and they just wouldn't accept that. And I was actually like ending what was between us. And, um, it was very challenging for me to kind of comprehend how someone who I had known could do that to me. And I think, like you said, Mm. like trauma isn't a comparison, but so much of the time when we share what we're going through, we recognize that people feel the same way when they're met with certain circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's this great Khalil Gibran, who's the poet. I know you're into poetry, mm-hmm. but he has this poem called On Pain. And one line in it is Pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses our understanding, right? And that shell can be broken a lot of different ways, right? There's some people you could fire a missile at that shell and it's the wrong missile, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. a different shaped one may break that. But when something breaks your understanding of the world, you know, your world, like it can have this cascading effect. Like what you're describing there is there's the sexual assault and that loss there, but then the impact that it had on your relationship is another set of losses. And it's just this cascading, you know, set of losses, one of which is actually your understanding of the world, your world kind of broke it sounds like yeah i think that's exactly it and i think that's what people don't really talk about when they talk about the impact of sexual assault and so much of the time people don't talk about the impact of sexual assault like i think it's very common for people to for people to kind of be like oh yeah so many people lie about being sexually assaulted or raped And I think that comes from a place where people don't understand the impact it has. And they say, yeah, people are just looking for money and a settlement. And like, I remember I was in hospital once and someone said something like that to me. And I was like, well, you know, I'm sure she has to go to a lot of therapy after what had happened to her. And I'm sure that money would really help with the therapy. And that person immediately was like, you know what, you're right. You know, that's that's actually a fascinating point because I think – I, I think there's I think there's a thread to why we tend to do some of those things. Now, some of it's just about dismissal, but I was just thinking about what you were saying and, you know, like people getting settlements and those kinds of things. Those tend to be like about employment, sexual harassment or other things like that. Rarely are they about rape but or sexual assault, but I do hear people saying those things. And You know, one of the interesting experiences I have had with my friends, my colleagues, my clients who have opened up to me about sexual assault or rape, it's it um, almost inevitably it's in a it's in a situation where they have nothing to gain by reporting it, not financially, right? They have Mm -hmm. nothing to gain, and 
it's interesting that people feel they have to label it that way. And part of me just wonders whether people really struggle with the idea of living in a world, you know, like living in a world where these horrible things are happening in the background and people will, because of their cognitive dissonance would rather believe that it's not true. And that's part of the reason why they do that. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time, because people are so silent about sexual assault and rape is that people don't recognize that there can be miscommunication and someone can rape someone and sexually assault them and they can still have other qualities that make them of value to people in their life. They could still be loyal to the people that they love. They could still be a caring person. And I think it's hard for people to recognize because we don't see how many people actually are offenders in this way. Yeah, because we like demons, right? Like we like to hear the story about the person who uh, killed someone who also was horrible to everyone in their life and they were controlling and they were all these horrible things. And I think we're less comfortable with the idea that that kid who lives beside me, who's really nice and, you know, uh, picks up my newspaper or helps get my mail or, you know, is a really good babysitter to my kids might also do something like sexual assault or kill someone or harm someone like that is i think too messy for us because of our own anxiety if that makes sense we want to believe that we can tell good people and bad people and good people do good things bad people do bad things and bad people are all bad so i'll see them coming if that makes sense i want you know an interesting thing i wonder whether like that contributes to some of that the things that people say along the lines of like, well, you know, where you're almost victim blaming and you're saying something like, well, you should have seen it coming type stuff. Does that make sense? Like that maybe a part of that is because people want to believe that if it were to happen to them, they would see it coming. I think that's really true. And also I think, I think it comes from people not talking about it. Um, I, I was, um, sexually assaulted before the Me Too movement. And I think there was, it was like a different culture. Like, I think it was very common for, for me to tell my friends this happened to me and them to be like, oh yeah, that happened to me too. I'm never going to tell anyone. And, um, for so many people to experience it and not feel supported or not feel a sense of solidarity I think before the Me Too movement, that was how people were experiencing it. And I think even now, now a lot of victim blaming comes from uh, comes from people who are like, oh, this person would never do that. But it's like, it's not so much about the person necessarily being someone who commits a crime. Because it's like, how much do we know about people who commit crimes really? Like in reality, like we watch TV shows that aren't realistic. Yeah, often very little. Like, I find myself in this debate all the time because you probably have guessed I'm a bit of a true crime fan, but I'll find myself in these arguments with people where the defense of the accused is often, well, like, he was nice to people or I don't see anything in his background. And one of the things that we've really learned from, like, a criminology perspective is that actually we used to think 
that like taking murder as an example that a lot of murderers had murdered before, right? Like they had murdered several times. Well, actually a lot of murderers and they figured this out through the um, genealogy work, the forensic genealogy work where, where they're using genealogy to solve unsolved cases that a lot of people murder once or they, or they Mm -hmm. sexually assault someone once. So like, Trying to like create this picture, I think, can be kind of dangerous for 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 society and for the people who have gone through something bad. But I also think it can be dangerous for you if you're using it as your measure of whether you should be concerned. I was going to ask you, um, what? Tell me a, a little bit about what happened to your mental health in that initial period where you weren't sharing your story and sharing about it like who was the first person you told to the first person i told was my friend um one of my best friends who i knew since high school and i had said something to her and she was like she said katie that's rape and i remember thinking okay i'm not going to tell anyone else what had happened to me how did you view it before she before she said that um I was just frightened, um, definitely in freeze mode and a little bit of fawn um, as like a trauma response. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the idea of like locking locking up, becoming yes. very risk averse and cautious. And then fawn is more of the like trying to grow close to people to feel safe. Is that a good definition? of? What- yeah. And also like um, during it, uh, is like more like physically like just not moving and um fawning like um not necessarily being like aggressively oh. like, like trying to like you during the assault itself. yes yes okay. Got it. um so for for that was like the psychology in my mind was like i thought about like well maybe it was my fault or mm. like this was like a miscommunication which i think has truth to it but also, um, that doesn't mean that it was necessarily my fault. Yeah, um, it's an interesting point because I think a lot of people don't get the idea, like they have in their heads that there's a certain response to certain things, whether it's sexual assault or something else. And we tend to like think that like people should fight in that moment. And it's not only like necessarily the like the statistics tell us fighting isn't always the best idea, um, but. I think people don't realize more deeper that people tend to have four different responses, right? Fight, flight, uh, freeze, and then fawn. And because people don't talk about how we have those different responses and how they're really deeply rooted in our psychology, we often interpret like people not fighting as, I don't know, in this negative light. Yeah, I mean, I'll just be like completely honest. Like, I had no chance, like physically. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. yeah I know. I'm like laughing about it, um, but yeah, um, that also might not be your stress response, right? Like, I am yeah. a, I am a fight person. So, like, you know, and and I don't think that's necessarily better because my fight response can be pretty dangerous sometimes for myself and for others. But I think it was really helpful for me in in life and realizing, like, I had always heard the flight part. Like, I knew flight existed. But I didn't realize that, like, fawn and freeze existed. 
And when once I began to understand that, I was able to better understand people's reactions to stress that like, you know, that your stress response, whatever it is, whoever you are, is the sign that something doesn't feel right. There's not like a one size fits all response. Mm-hmm. And so like maybe for you, not thinking about the stress responses led to you blaming yourself. Is that what you're saying? Um, yeah, I think it I think it's very natural especially before the Me Too movement, to blame yourself because there's not enough people speaking up about it and not enough people talking about it. And for me, it was hard to see someone who seemed who seemed like a, a good person doing this to me, and I couldn't reconcile that. And also, I thought that if I told anyone, they couldn't reconcile that and they wouldn't believe me. And I remember thinking just – like I remember thinking this is someone who seems – like they have it all together and then there's me and I was like I'm like a young party girl at the time I was and I'm like who's gonna believe that this happened to me Mm. you told me something that really struck me when we when we talked a month ago we were talking about like your second sexual assault and I think my reaction I, I was probably giving off a reaction like oh my god right And you said to me that there was actually something good about it. And I don't, I I don't mean that like good about it overall, but good about it in the sense that it solidified for you that like the first one nor the second one was really your fault. Could you talk to me about that piece of it? That was like, that was very surprising to me and powerful to me. So the second one was like after, like it was like, I met someone online dating. It was like the first date and I was just like super drunk that I didn't want to like go home alone because I thought I wouldn't be able to make it home alone. Um, And it actually, I thought to myself that if this could happen to me and I was like in advanced standing in the master's program at Fordham Graduate School of Social Service and I was in doctoral classes for statistics And I had like a great internship and I like really had what it felt like was everything was all put together. And I felt like I had more credibility and I was like, if this could happen to me like that, and then I know it's not my fault. And that's what changed my perspective on the first one, that the first one wasn't my fault either, even if it doesn't matter how much credibility you have. It doesn't matter how how put together you are. It doesn't matter any of that. What matters is that like that shouldn't happen to anyone and that it's not your fault. It's the fault of the person who does it. Hmm. That's interesting that that good seed, the seed of something good came out of that. There's this concept, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it, and let me know if you have, called traumatic repetitive syndrome. Have you ever heard of that? No, what is it? Yeah, it's it's this interesting psychological subtherapeutic response. It like operates underneath PTSD, and you'll see it with like a lot of people, like EMTs, right? Like you are an EMT, you go out to a crash site, you see something really bad or horrible happen, and when when that happens, right? Like each time you go to that horrible thing, you're desensitized to it. 
But 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 over time, and it happens with sexual assault too, and it may contribute to the idea why, like, if someone's sexually assaulted once, it exponentially increases the likelihood that they're sexually assaulted. And I once had a cl- client explain it to me beautifully. She said the first time she was sexually assaulted, she racked her brain around what she could do so it would never happen again. And so she convinced herself that like, okay, I'm not going to walk down a dark alley alone with a guy anymore. And if I don't walk down the dark alley with a guy anymore, a bad thing's not going to happen. And then it happens again, even though she's removed that variable. And, you know, and then all of a sudden she's trying to find out the commonalities that if I recreate the situation over and over again, it, by changing it in the ways that I need to change myself because I think it's going to make me safe, then bad things won't happen. And what, what the psychologist we were all working with said, well, what it actually does is it actually creates this sort of false sense of security. And it sounds like on some level for you, you were convinced, like, if I get my life together and I pull my life together and I become that person who has it all together, I'm going to be safe. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. And I think also probably like a little more deeply, it wasn't so much about safety, but it was about people would believe me. And I felt so alone and so isolated. And that was a part of why I became suicidal was that I felt like no one believed me and that made me feel absolutely worthless was that I felt like I was in it alone and that I could never talk about it. Had you ever felt suicidal before the rape? Um, No. And it actually didn't start until like um, a year later where I had spent the summer in the city and it, it was like the best summer of my life I was in Manhattan. Everything was like going so well. And then I moved in to an off-campus housing in the Bronx where it had happened to me. And it was a few blocks away from the street that it had happened on. And that's when um, all of this kind of like came came at me all at once. And I just felt so unsafe. Um, I experienced a little bit of like psychosis. I thought I was in danger and it was just a lot of it was PTSD hypervigilance and it was so traumatizing to me to be back to where it happened. Yeah. Like in those moments when you're hypervigilant, you're expending so much energy and it's so hard and it sounds like psychosis, you can become delusional or you can become paranoid and it just becomes exhausting as somebody who's been through those things. Did it, and, and is that what sort of led you to like, where were you at? Did you not want to, did you not, did you not want to live at that point? Did you, you know, cause I, I was just thinking about like that idea that there's a difference between not wanting to die and wanting to live and somewhere in there, in all those spaces, you know, people who are suicidal can be at different different points in that spectrum. So where were you at? Yeah, it was a lot of things. It was dealing with the trauma, having it feel so unbearable, and also feeling so alone and feeling like I couldn't open up to anyone and that no one would believe me and that I was in it 
alone and that my relationships were based off of me entertaining people rather than me being who I truly am. And not that who I truly am isn't meant to entertain people because I think, I hope in some aspects it does, but that there's a part of me that is sacred that is there to connect with people in their sacred space. And I think that that's not always based on humor. And that was, the humor was really my coping mechanism and it was the only one I had. Mm. How did you, how did you find your way out of that sort of trap, that suicidality? Yeah. So for me, I was suicidal. I had eight suicide attempts in the span of three years. And then I saw the play Elephant Man and it starred Bradley Cooper and it was incredible. It showed me that even if we're dehumanized, that doesn't mean that our life isn't worth living. And that doesn't mean that we deserve it. And it doesn't mean that we're defined by the way people treat us. You know, I never thought of that. Like, I remember when I was younger that the movie version of that would come on and I always loved it. But like, I never, I never really thought that that was like a important life lesson that like, even if you feel like the ugly duckling inside, like you have value, you -hmm. bring value. And I think we go through points in our lives where it's like hard to see that, hard to see that, that value. Um, so it really was seeing like the play and seeing something creative and powerful and creative that may not have even been intended to help that really did help you. Yeah, absolutely. And just because of how much I love acting, like I, it was incredible performance and what it takes for um, or took for Bradley Cooper's body to be in the position to mimic Joseph Merrick was just truly incredible and for him to perform and to do that with his body at the same time it was really powerful and he had such a stage presence and I also felt really connected to um, his work before that because the first day I got out of the hospital I had watched I went to the movies with two of my friends Silver Lining Playbook and one of my favorite I, movies. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. I'll, I, can I tell you a real quick funny story about yes. it? Yes. So I went to go see it with my partner. She and I, ex-partner now, but my partner, we're best friends now. But um, we went to go see it and we were, so she's got bipolar in her family. I have bipolar. You know, so there's a lot of like wackiness and there's probably a little bit of borderline in her family too. So we both saw that and we were like, this is amazing. This is so authentic. It's so real. It's so great. And, you know, that's part of the reason why this is called Silver Linings Handbook. But, um, you know, we saw that movie and then fast forward to like a couple years later, first time I've had a manic episode in a decade. I had taken two medication, uh, medication twice and it had a, it was a, had a, it was Sudafed. It, was, it had a stimulating effect and it threw my meds off. And I go into this crazy manic episode for multiple days. And she is trying to do everything she can to help me find my way out of it, to get in touch with my psychiatrist. I'm like paranoid too during the whole part. And there's this one moment in the kitchen where two things happen. The youngest, who I think was probably about four at the time, jumps up into his seat and points at me and says, Jason, 
you are testing my patience. And then about 10 minutes later, my partner says, it's like I'm in this movie. I'm, it's like I'm in that movie. And I'm like, what movie? And she's like, the Silver Linings playbook. And I'm like, moment of clarity. I'm like, oh, shit. And I realized in that moment, I had one moment of clarity that cut through all of the mania and all of the psychosis. And I was like, I need to get help. Call the doctor. And it gave me actual absolute clarity. So I'm grateful for that movie because it was so relatable. And I'm grateful for that movie that it killed that manic episode and gave me that moment of clarity. Anyway, back to you. <laughs> yeah, well, that's so incredible. And I love that how um, stories can do that for us and that it shows us. Like, I thought that was like just another incredible portrayal. And also it was the day I got out of the hospital and it starts off with him in the hospital getting out. So it just, mm. it felt, it, it felt really sentimental. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, you told folks at that UN event about your story. How did you end up deciding to take it onto a broader stage and build your social media presence and use creativity through your coaching? And, you know, how did you, how did you decide to take it from there? Yeah, so first I um after the UN event, I actually um detoxed my medication with a push from the, my boyfriend at the time and that relationship became physically abusive and that's why we ended it and I off of medication had a mental health relapse and I Why did he get uh, you off the medication? I think there's a lot of stigma in general and mm. any I think he couldn't imagine that I could ever need medication because of how stable I was on the medication. Ah, uh, so it masked it for him. Yeah. And um, when I was off of medication, I experienced psychosis. I stopped eating, sleeping, and showering. And it was very, very much a trying time. I became suicidal again when I went back on medication and I was in and out of hospitals. I think it was like three in one year. And I wanted to hold myself accountable for writing. So um, I actually started a poetry platform and I wrote a poem a year, a poem a week for a year. And I called it Summation 52. And it was really like, um, because there's this saying that it takes a year to stabilize on medication. So I was like, if I could just make it through this first year, maybe I'll uh, no 52 weeks. Yeah. No longer feel suicidal. So that was the point of it and kind of like how much growth can I have in this one year? So summation 52. And that was where my two poetry books came from. I still am writing poetry. Um, and it's just so important to me that I've grown from it and that I can look back on those books and remember where I was when I wrote that poem and see how much my life has changed. You know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting uh, you know you mentioned the poetry i'm curious like from your perspective how can creativity be used because we kind of alluded to that talking about the elephant man and the silver linings playbook movie and the play i think they did it as a play i might be wrong but how 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 do you think creativity like has a unique ability to kind of help with the healing process. 
I think the very first thing I would say is this idea of suspending negative emotion and whether it just be reading one poem to get through a few minutes or watching a movie to get through an hour and a half or um, reading to get you through however long you're reading for. And I think there's a lot of power in that feeling like you can escape from your situation because I think a lot of people have these feelings that just over overwhelm them and are all-consuming. And stories can suspend those feelings, if not even help us heal them, if that's what the story is about. Oh, that's a really good point. That suspension, that being able to sort of like transport can kind of take you away from the pain and begin the healing. And I imagine another piece of it too is that like, it creates a fantasy world and fantasies are really the foundation for our dreams and our dreams are our foundation for the future that we're going to build. I think that's an awesome way to look at it. And then you as a coach, how do you, how do you work with people? Do you work with people who are both looking to be more creative and to heal? Um, so I, I think it's something that has to be a disclaimer is that coaching is not therapy and that it shouldn't be a replacement for therapy. So I do talk to people about that. And I'm very clear that when I talk about mental health, I speak from the point of a mental health advocate and not as a mental health professional. So I think that's something to be very clear about. Um, but in terms of coaching, I I do talk about my journey a lot with people. And most of the people who come to me are very familiar with my story. And when I was first training, um, I was attracting a lot of people who had a lot of similar trauma. And that was something that I recognized that we had like a point of similarities where we would heal through art and um, so much of the time, what people do for self-care writers specifically is write, which is something you don't really find in a lot of other places because a lot of the times when you do something, whether it be like professionally or um, you put it out there, it could be hard to see that as self-care because it, it takes on this different energy. Um, but I think you should always have things for yourself that are cathartic and actually in college, I, I took acting classes and that was really cathartic for me. And that actually helped me heal a lot. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't realize that like creativity can come in so many different forms. Not everybody needs to be a writer or an artist. Like there are all sorts of like wild and creative things that you can do that are sort of shape-shifting or transporting. Like I have one colleague, like her sister is a, it's what you would call a traditional artist, but she, this colleague, she's really imaginative, but she's not an artist or a writer, but she'll do these like wild creative things related to work and sorting and organizing things that sort of helps her or she'll move her whole office or room around in some creative way. And it's like this healing thing for her. And I, like, I'm not a painter, but I realize, oh, like when I get really stressed out, I'll open up a PowerPoint and create a beautiful PowerPoint. But it's that idea that creativity, and I think you nailed something I had never thought of. It takes me away from the place where I'm feeling pain and it allows me to build something, something 
something good. I was going to ask you one thing I was curious about is like, there are a lot of things that are really difficult about making yourself a public figure. Uh, a lot of people like think of people who are influencers who have impact as like, you know, special people who live charmed lives. But what I found is by being a public figure, not only do you have an opportunity to do good, you're putting yourself on the firing line. Um, and you're putting yourself in high stakes situations where, where people may want your help. But I'm curious, what has that been like for you? Yeah, a lot of the times I don't really see myself as a public figure. Um, I think it is a part, being public is a part of what I do. But I think nowadays you don't have to necessarily see yourself as a public figure. Um, But I do understand that I have a public um, presence. Mm -hmm. And um, for me specifically, I think sharing your message is something that's really powerful. And I think a lot of the times it can seem like the bad doesn't outweigh the good because a lot of the times people who are getting a lot from your content aren't always liking or commenting or messaging you. And the people who are not happy with your content um, or not happy with your message or not happy with sometimes even like my body when I put out a picture that um, shows more than just my face, I get a lot of hate comments and a lot of criticism. I try if it's criticism to see if there's any validity to it and if I can improve my writing or improve my presence in any way or um, put disclaimers or if I can take that in any way that's positive. Um, But I always go back to this one central idea and that's that the one person who's listening is more important to me who can be impacted by what I have to say than Mm -hmm. the person who's sending me hate and that I focus on clearly giving the message with all of my heart to that one person and put all my love into it and just know that that's going to reach that person. And sometimes even the hate will expand the reach, but I mean, I've broken down before from the hate. And actually, I created my boutique, Equanimity Boutique, after I was getting a lot of online harassment. And I had collaborated with someone and he um, just really like started harassing me like across platforms. And I didn't feel like I didn't feel like it was appropriate to block him because we had collaborated. And again, it's that kind of like victim blaming, I think. And it's my mm-hmm. fault kind of stuff. Um, but I created this shirt stronger than hate. And wearing that shirt always reminds me that I am stronger than the hate I get. And um, in creating something from that pain, it allowed for me to heal, work through it, and also recognize that if I'm getting this message from people of hate, that the people who are out there who need to hear my message need to hear it that much more because there's people out there who are going to try to tear them down. Mm -mm. One really striking post that um, you posted a picture of yourself, full body picture. And I think you may have been in like a bikini or something like that. And I felt like your post was all about like being proud of yourself. That was like the underlying point and like not body shaming yourself. And one of the fascinating things that happened was that you were then attacked for that. You were essentially body shamed for a post about not body shaming. 
But I didn't come across the post that way because it had shown up in my feed because somebody I know had replied to it and they were so moved by it in in such a positive way. And then I clicked on it and I saw the whole thread with the negative stuff. And I did think to myself, at least she reached this one person and I hope for her that was worth it. It always is. Um I I think I've I've been through so much that I had to get through on my own before I like had more of a public persona and I think it made me stronger to the point that I connect more with the person in pain who's looking for healing and looking for that one glimmer of hope and than I do with anyone who's sending me hate. And I could have my own insecurities, and I do. I have a lot of insecurities, but I can live with them. Yeah. No, that makes complete sense. I was curious, like, what is the one message you would want people to take away from your story? Um, I would say one main message is that even when things get worse, life is still worth living. Mm. Yeah. It's hard to see sometimes. It's just really hard, I think, at times to see that. How how do you think people can find that glimmer? I guess through things like the arts and friends and family. Like, yeah, I have this um, this method, the arches method, and it's basically like you go through asking yourself these self discovery questions, so that you can kind of like find what it is that matters to you, what excites you, and what do you have conviction in, and then use that to develop skills through education, and then use that to serve people. And I think really the pinnacle of healing is when you can take what you've been through and have that be part of your purpose to serve others, and that it doesn't become this kind of like selfish pain that you self-loathe in, but it becomes a point of connection, and again, sharing that same heartbeat. Yeah. It reminds me of like the 12 steps in AA, right? Like the 12th step is all about service and being of service. And it's not just for the purpose of serving others, but that being of service heals. Mm-hmm. It heals you. It heals others. Now, just curious, before we before we wrap up, I just want to see if you have any closing thoughts. Yeah, I would say for anyone who is stuck in that place that feels life isn't worth living and is stuck in a mindset where other people's people's opinions of you are your reality, I just want you to know that this is your world, that you have agency, you have autonomy, that you can decide today to be stronger than your circumstances and that you can face anything that you're going through because you are stronger than what you go through. And at the end of your journey, I hope you look back and see the beauty in all of your battles and the strength in all of your storms. You couldn't see me over here saying preach. (laughs) 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 I was like, that woman should be given a sermon somewhere. I think that is a powerful message. Like people are stronger and more resilient than they than they think sometimes and like sometimes like conversations like this one like seeing our commonalities that shared heartbeat that you talked about reaching out and holding out someone's hand who's walked walked in fire can 
can remind you that you have strength. And this was like a powerful conversation for me because, you know, life for me personally has not been super easy over the last few weeks and months. And just listening to you and listening to you make those points, you know, if you, if you want to have that one person that you help today, I can tell you that he's on the other end of this conversation. So I really appreciate it. And I wanted to just, you know, thank you for joining. And I think this is going to be a super powerful conversation for people. Thanks, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. This is the Silver Linings Handbook podcast. I'm Jason Blair. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next week.